I'm Elliot Kraft, and this is The Cafeteria. Twice a month, we bring you the only English training podcast for Francophone professionals, exclusively for members of Kraft Anglais. Today, we kick off The Cafeteria by talking about language learning goals that work for you rather than against you. And we tackle one of the key pronunciation challenges for Francophone speakers of English. Finally, I take questions on a range of topics from you, the Kraft Anglais community. So get yourself a coffee, pick up your frischti, and let's get started. If someone had asked me a year ago if I ever thought I'd do a podcast, I'd have said they were crazy. But there's a first time for everything. Here's what I have in mind for the cafeteria. Twice a month on Tuesday at noon, I'm going to drop a 20 to 30 minute podcast for Craft Anglais members only. The idea is to give you an excuse to close your office door, turn off your notifications, and do something different with your brain for a few minutes. The concept is a three act structure. We start with a kind of mini cours magistral, a short lesson thematically connected to one of the training spaces on the Craft Anglais platform back to basics, trouble verbs, etc. Next, a pronunciation break. A podcast is an excellent opportunity to practice listening comprehension, and you'll notice that I'm not speaking like this. But it's also a natural venue for work on pronunciation, so each episode will present a key pronunciation point that we'll unpack together. And yes, there will be tongue twisters. We'll conclude by hearing from you, the Craft Anglais community, in a kind of permanence, or what we call office hours. Maybe you have a question about a Craft Anglais lesson, or maybe you're wondering if it's call for bids or call for tender, or maybe you're looking for the perfect way to wish an Anglophone colleague happy birthday. Office hours is a place to ask your questions and a place where all Craft Anglais members can benefit from them. So without further ado, let's get started with today's lesson. One mini lesson. Since this is the first cafeteria podcast, I thought I'd start with a lesson for the platform's motivation space, and I'd like to begin it with a confession. My French is not great, and that doesn't bother me at all. If you're wondering what this has to do with setting healthy language learning goals, just give me six minutes and 27 seconds. In 2013, I came to France to write my doctoral thesis. In the first weeks after my arrival, I presented a paper at an academic conference. The chair of the panel was an American professor, a specialist in Molière. It was a sort of mixed Franco-Anglo panel. There was somebody from France, somebody from Quebec, and there was me. When she introduced the panel, the chair did it in a sort of bilingual introduction that had clearly been prepared in advance and probably used at other conferences normal. At the end of her introduction, she concluded by saying that this was the only French she'd be using today as she'd lived in France for only one year and consequently wasn't fluent. Now, I had just arrived and I was full of all kinds of ambition for my French experience. And I remember hearing this statement and being sort of outraged. You're a specialist in Molière? You lived in France for a year? And you're not fluent? And at that moment, a little green man inside of me raised a fist to the sky and vowed, 
In six months, I shall be perfectly fluent in French. Let's fast forward to today. Or the other day, when I was in the courtyard of my apartment complex and I passed my new neighbors, an older couple based in Paris who just bought the apartment upstairs. I greeted them, we introduced ourselves, and we started exchanging pleasantries. But after a moment, something weird happened. The couple switched to English. Now, I don't remember feeling particularly challenged by the French in that moment. Without a doubt, I was making some mistakes, but the conversation seemed pretty fluid and natural. The impression I got, though, was that the couple felt they were somehow ending a tremendous suffering and doing me a great favor by switching over to an English that, to be honest, I'm not really sure was better than my French. Now, I'd be lying if I said that things like this, which do happen from time to time, weren't a little annoying. And I'd also be lying if I said there wasn't part of me that still wants to be the master of all things French, perfectly bilingual. But at a certain point, our pure and noble aspirations need to confront various realities, like the limits of our capabilities and the humiliating generosity of our neighbors. But also the reality of arriving at a point where, wherever things are, you're pretty much okay with where they are. The imperfect French that I have is perfect in the sense that it allows me to do precisely the things that matter most. Can I get tips from my butcher on how to make the perfect riz de veau? Check. Can I ask my caviste reasonably informed questions about rare cépage from the Jura? Check. Can I tell my dog to stay or lie down? Check. Then there's the whole teaching English thing. My role here isn't to be fluent in French, it's to be fluent in English. And while my great French experience may not have finally resulted in perfect fluency, it's given me all the tools I need to do my job helping Francophone language learners like you. If you're listening to this, it's because you've decided you need English. You're a lawyer working in the Paris office of an Anglophone firm. You're counsel for a French corporation and you handle international accounts. You're a researcher who conducts research in France or on French things, but who circulates in the international context of research publications and conferences. Now I'm willing to bet that your value, even in those international contexts, is much more directly tied to the fact that you're French and doing French things than it is to some abstract idea of perfect fluency in some other language. So let's talk about setting language learning goals other than perfection. But first, a word about perfection. A couple of years ago, I was contacted by a prospective client with a very specific request. The prospect, an investor expanding his North American portfolio, was looking for intensive training in what he referred to as accent reduction. Naturally, pronunciation is an area of interest for most language learners. But in all my years of teaching, I had never been contacted for the express purpose of work on pronunciation, to say nothing of accent reduction. I didn't even know accent reduction was a thing. After informing myself a bit on the subject, I scheduled a consultation with the prospect. Given the nature of his request, I confess I was expecting a caricatural French accent, like Peter Sellers' brilliant Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther films. So you can imagine my surprise when, at the appointed hour, my call was answered by a voice 
with no recognizable accent whatsoever. Now, one could imagine that English might not be the investor's native language, but what it was was really anybody's guess. When, after a few minutes of conversation, I confessed that I didn't really detect an accent, the prospect was adamant. He was absolutely convinced that his overpowering French accent was blocking his ability to do business in the States, and he was prepared to do anything to achieve the perfect American accent. Language learning is personal, and this is especially true when the target language is essential in order to conduct business or live our lives. Language learning can also be lonely, and when you don't have a coach or a language buddy or a group to help you keep things in perspective, it can rapidly become like a hall of distorting mirrors at a circus, each mirror reflecting a different flaw or imperfection, another failing of your English undoubtedly mocked in secret by your colleagues, clients, even your friends. It's kind of banal as an observation, but sometimes you just need to hear somebody say these things out loud. Perfection isn't a goal. It's an abstraction, a fiction. And like with so many other fictions, the power it has to rule over us is directly related to the amount of energy we invest in it. But investing in perfection isn't going to produce dividends, precisely because it's an abstraction. So how do we step out of that hall of distorting mirrors? We set language learning goals that work for us rather than against us. And how do we do that, you might ask? We do it, my friends, by focusing on the pain. Now, I'm not a sadist, but I am convinced that identifying concrete pain points is one of the best ways to establish language learning goals that actually pay off. So let's do an exercise altogether. Don't worry, there won't be any group hugs or trust falls. We're going to start with the two pain points that I most frequently hear when consulting with prospective clients. The first goes something like this. English is stressful. I have no problem litigating a case in French in a courtroom full of colleagues and experts, but as soon as I have to do something in English, my confidence disappears. I can feel the blood rushing to my head, my hands shake. It's really a nightmare. The second pain point sounds something like this. English is exhausting. I have no issues with a conference call in French, even a long and complicated one. But doing exactly the same call in English leaves me feeling completely wiped out. And after a day of training in London, forget the pub. I'm going dodo. Let's take the first complaint, the stress and anxiety that English can provoke. By the way, you're going to want to grab something to write with or open a note on your computer or phone. Now, in your mind, I'd like you to do a rapid review of the various scenarios in which you use English. Is there one that stands out as being more stressful than the others? An event or activity or practice that you simply dread? Picture it in your mind, then write it down. Now, same thing with fatigue. Ask yourself, from among the various applications of English in your professional or personal life, is there one in particular that takes a lot out of you and leaves you feeling exhausted? Visualize it, then write it down. Now let's get more specific. For each of the scenarios you've just identified, I want you to note a couple of details. For your stressful, anxiety-provoking situation, are there things that stand out as making it particularly stressful? For some people, the fact that an English activity takes place in public can be a source of anxiety. 
For others, it might be when there's some kind of power relation involved in an annual review, for example, or a job interview. You know what it is for you. Don't overthink it. Just note down a couple of concrete details that contribute to making that stressful scenario stressful. Now, same thing for fatigue. Can you identify a couple of specific things that make that tiring thing so tiring? Is it because it's a particularly complex task or because it's an English activity that requires you to remain focused for long periods? Again, keep it simple. Just jot down whatever comes to mind. Okay, great. Now you have some homework. The next time you find yourself in either situation, the stressful one or the tiring one, I want you to do a quick check-in with yourself and rate the level of anxiety or fatigue you experience on a scale of 1 to 10. Add that to the notes you've just taken, and the first part of our exercise is complete. Now, forget all that because it's time to identify some bête noire. Here, I want you to note two or three everyday tasks that you wish were less complicated to manage in English. These should be as concrete as possible. Writing a specific type of email, for example, or talking about large financial figures. For me, saying goodbye in French was always super complicated. You have to ask yourself what time of day it is. You need to anticipate when you're going to see the person next, etc. Don't overthink it. Just pick a few everyday English tasks you wish were a little less challenging and write them down. Here's the way I'd like you to define language learning goals going forward. Targeted work on tiny things that are practical, concrete, not enormous, not abstract, just little corners of your English experience where you'd like to see some improvement. And here we're going to rinse and repeat, as we say. With these things too, the next time you engage in the activity, I want you to give it a score on a scale of 1 to 10. How challenging or complicated does it feel to execute this particular task? Bonne journée, bon dimanche, bonsoir, à tout de suite, à tout à l'heure, salut, à la prochaine, à très vite, à tout de suite, à demain, à la prochaine fois, à l'un des prochains. Now you may be saying, look, this guy wants me to work on how to say goodbye. Listen, mister, I have way bigger problems with my English than saying goodbye. As much as we'd like to believe otherwise, it's precisely by focusing on tiny, high-value things in the right ways and at the right rhythm that we achieve our broader language goals. Indeed, those more ambitious goals are only possible because of the tiny work. And the nice thing about approaching it this way is that you'll know the process is real and that it's moving forward because you marked it. So if you have two hours a week for English, give 30 minutes to practical conference call phrases, 30 minutes to the past tense, and the rest to something fun like a series or a movie. After a few weeks of consistently working like this, check in with yourself. Any movement on the scale of 1 to 10 for those challenging things? I guarantee you that if you stick with it, you're going to start to see progress. Now, this is important. When you get just a few marks further on that scale of 1 to 10, say you started at 4 and now you're feeling more like a 7, it's time to set that particular goal to the side for a bit. Put practical conference call phrases over there and bring in a new challenge. 
Your work with the first couple of challenges will help you target the next candidates. You'll be in it, and you'll just know where the work needs to happen next. Within a couple of months, you're going to have five or six concrete corners of the English language that you've identified, begun working with, and are improving on in a way that can be measured. And we're not looking for miracles here. And maybe the theme of today's mini-lesson is quite simply, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Having modest but continuous progress on multiple fronts is going to be way better for your English than focusing all your attention on being absolutely perfect at a single task. And how will you know it's better for your English? Because we marked this too. When you next find yourself in your stressful and tiring scenarios, check in again. Take your pulse. Any movement there on the scale from 1 to 10? After working consistently on goals like this for a few weeks, I'm confident you'll be pleasantly surprised by the change you feel. Now here's what we've done. We've taken two feelings, anxiety and fatigue, and we've given them faces by linking them to real-life scenarios. And we've made those scenarios concrete and specific by adding detail and color to them. We've also identified two or three concrete, everyday English things that you'd like to be able to do with more facility. And for all of these, we've gone a step further and we've fixed a provisional point of reference marking the degree of stress, of fatigue, of challenge. Working like this is a sure way to escape the distorting funhouse mirrors of linguistic self-doubt. And while it'll take work and it won't happen overnight, I have a suspicion that just completing this exercise and getting things started will add a boost to your confidence and some extra fuel for tiring tasks. These are the almost instantaneous rewards that come with taking matters into hand, stepping away from abstraction, and rooting the work of English mastery in the here and the now. And if you're wondering where to turn to find resources with which to train on this or that point, look no further than the Craft Anglais platform. And if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to me through the community messenger and just tell me, hey, I'm working on X, I'm working on Y, those are my goals, can you write the lesson? And guess what? I'll write the lesson. Because the odds are that if it's something you're working on, it's something other members of the Craft Anglais community are working on as well. And that's exactly why we're here, to come together around a common need for English and for ways of working on English that, well, work. Act 2, Pronunciation Break. No, it's not a gas leak. It's the voiceless dental frictive, otherwise known as TH. You say parenthèse, we say parenthesis. You say théâtre, we say theater. You say thèse, we say thesis. Today's pronunciation parenthèse examines the funny sound anglophones make when we put our tongues between our teeth. But since this is a day of firsts, and since our theme is language training goals that work, a word about goals related to pronunciation. 
Let's agree right away to add perfect pronunciation to the list of English goals that aren't going to work for you, but are going to work against you. For almost 10 years now, I've been exchanging in English with Francophones for between 20 and 30 hours a week. Take it from me. Statistically speaking, there are very few cases where a French accent, even a relatively pronounced one, is going to prevent you from clearly communicating what you need to. Let me develop this point using an example we all know. The famous French R. Well, what are you then? I'm French! Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? No single feature of the French accent has been more lampooned and stereotyped than the R. But practically speaking, does this famous French R really matter? In the first moments of any conversation, tons of data is circulating, both consciously and unconsciously. Let's imagine an exchange between you, a francophone, and an American. Now, if your American interlocutor has never spoken in English with a francophone, naturally those first couple of French R's could be a little turbulent. Well, what the heck was that? But here's something fascinating about the way the brain works. Even if those first few R's are unfamiliar, within seconds of beginning the exchange, and without even being conscious of it, your American interlocutor will come to understand, oh, that's an R. The simple repetition of the French R, where an American R would be, unconsciously establishes the substitution as a rule. All your interlocutor needs to do is hear a few of those French R's in the right places, and the brain does the rest. Now, does this mean that we should forget about pronunciation altogether? Not at all. Pronunciation has an important role to play in any serious English language training program. That's why an entire space of the Craft Anglais platform is dedicated to it. And that's also why we're going to take advantage of these cafeteria sessions to train on pronunciation together. But what this miraculous capacity of the human brain does suggest is that overemphasizing pronunciation in your training is probably not going to deliver the highest return on investment. If you have two hours a week for English, and things like using the past tense or discussing financial figures are challenging, please, stop watching those YouTube pronunciation videos. Your energy and attention are required elsewhere. I think I sometimes disappoint clients when I say this, but my rule of thumb for pronunciation is quite simply, if it doesn't contribute to a breakdown in sense or meaning, it really doesn't matter that much. But let's get back to TH, so I can give you an example of when pronunciation really might matter. Imagine somebody says, I need to finish writing this chapter of my thesis. Or, we went to the teeter to see the new James Bond film. In both cases, TH isn't a problem. Just like with the pronunciation of the letter R, context takes care of the work of listening comprehension for us. The brain just needs to do its thing. There is a case where TH can make a major difference, and if you're somebody who works regularly with financial figures, this note is for you. The French croissance translates to growth in English. Now, the tendency when francophones struggle with TH is to turn TH into a familiar aspirated consonant sound, S. Here, however, you could run into some trouble, because gross is already taken. It means brut. So we have two words here, gross, brut, and growth, croissance. And as anybody who works in finance knows, these are two words that have a high probability of being used in the context of the same exchange. 
Gross growth may not be the most compelling reason to work on TH, but depending on what you do for a living, it might be worth a minute. Whatever your situation, let's conclude this week's pronunciation break by practicing it together. Wherever you are, on the metro, in your co-working space, don't worry, no one will hear you. There's a reason they call it a voiceless dental frictive. Let's all put our tongues between our teeth and make that silly sound. In coming episodes of The Cafeteria, we'll go further with pronunciation. And if there is a point you want to work on, click over to the craft community and let me know. Now, it's time for Office Hours. Special delivery, a pen. Were you expecting one? A pen? You may be wondering where Q&A questions are coming from for a language platform that hasn't launched yet. Well, this, my friends, is the magic of the beta tester, one of my new favorite words in English. For the last several weeks, a supportive group of current and former clients has been taking the Craft Anglais platform for a test drive and generously providing their feedback. A few of them have also been kind enough to supply the questions for our very first office hour session. Let's start with Julie, who asks, I hear people say both 450 euros and 450 euros, which is correct. This is a great question. A couple of points come to mind. The first one is that spontaneously, for me, 450 euros and 450 euros are perfectly interchangeable. Both work just fine. They mean the same thing. Having said that, the simpler the number, the easier it is to accommodate that and. Let's take an example. 350,000 euros. For me, that's fine. But if I add 450 here, I end up with 350,450 euros. Things get a little heavy with those ands, so I think it would be natural for me to drop them in this case. 350,450 euros. Now, these aren't the kinds of things that native speakers of any language think about consciously until asked, but for me, this is a reasonable way to think about the choice of the and when it comes to numbers. A final point to make here, and maybe the most useful one, is that you'll never be wrong if you don't use the and. And if you make that your practice, if you do it systematically, you'll also naturally avoid the heavier versions of those bigger numbers where you have to work harder and keep track of both the number and the and or ands. So, while in principle both work and are basically interchangeable, there are good arguments for forgetting about the and altogether. Okay, Jean-Baptiste asks, what's the difference between need to and must? Thanks for the question, Jean-Baptiste. So here we're in a similar situation to the one we found ourselves in with Julie's question. In theory, need to and must mean the same thing. Both translate the French devoir. Like with Julie's question, though, there's a catch. Here, we're dealing with a question of register. 
What I mean by that is the relative formality of the language. The image I always give is that of a building and its various floors or levels. Let's take verbs need to, have to, got to, and must. Now, for me, need to, have to, got to, they all belong on the second floor. They're all classic, neutral, everyday verbs. Now, if I take got to and turn it into gotta, this is more a rez-de-chaussee, ground floor situation. We've done the contraction, got to, gotta, and here we're clearly in a less formal variant of devoir. Must, however, is more formal. So we could put it on the third, or I would even say on the fourth floor. Must is quite formal, in fact, and it's a word that you'll almost never hear me speak spontaneously. I would always opt for one of those second-floor have-to-need-to solutions. That's also something worth keeping in mind for your own exchanges in English. Using must, even in the context of a formal conversation with an Anglophone client or prospect, could be interpreted as rigid, as being a little too formal. So for devoir, aim for need-to and have-to, being aware that gotta and must are opportunities to lower or increase the formality if needed. Our last question is from Sarah, and full disclosure, I encouraged our first users to ask questions about grammar and pronunciation, but also about the purpose of Craft Anglais. Sarah asks, how should I use Craft Anglais? Well, Sarah, since you asked, the idea with Craft Anglais is simple. Once a week, more or less, I publish a lesson and twice a month, a podcast drops. The topics for this content are taken from the most statistically relevant challenges faced by Francophone speakers of English. The idea is to take a deep dive into a single, high-value problematic each week and to support the lesson by following it up with intelligent quizzes and useful and cool infographics. The principle is really one of quality over quantity. The idea isn't to overwhelm members with content, but to provide a steady supply of English training on the points that really merit your attention and effort over the course of a week. When you join Craft Anglais, you'll find existing content already on the platform. But if the only thing you do is jump right into the stream and start with this week's lesson, then next week's, and so on, you're going to be using Craft Anglais the way it was intended you'll be engaged in a process of progressively building a mental map of the most important linguistic landmarks for Francophone professionals, and you'll be doing it in good company. In coming office hour sessions, I'll be talking more about the Craft Anglais concept and how members can get the most out of the platform. And if you have a question about any aspect of the English language or about language learning more generally, just message me in the community and I'll work your question into a future episode. That does it for episode one of The Cafeteria. Next time, we take a close look at legal English and business English and ask, do those terms really mean anything? Plus, we continue our work on pronunciation by looking at some of the English words most frequently mispronounced by francophones. If you enjoyed this episode of The Cafeteria, make somebody's day by telling them all about it. Coucher Jean-Pierre. Pas bouger.